Hi, everybody. Did you hear it in there? I was proud of myself when I heard Ruth uh, do the scripture reading in our, in our meeting beforehand. Lumia, right? Lumia and Mont, right? You're recognizing it. The reason why we do that in Advent is um, Advent is one of those seasons where we want to give a sense of the, the global church, right? That this is literally very similar gatherings, maybe not in terms of culturally and all of that, but in terms of what Christians are focusing on right now um, is, is there's a unity around the world in this season that's just really beautiful, that's really compelling when you think about it, that all over the world people are talking about Advent and what it means to look back at the first arrival of Jesus and to long for his second coming. So that's why we're going to keep on doing that during the season. I thought, though, before we get started, why don't you greet someone around you? Again, some of you hate this. Some of you love, oh my goodness, with the eye rolls, a couple of you. Eye rolls were enormous. I won't call out any names. Um, Greet someone, and then we'll get started. Ready? Go. You got two or three minutes. All right, bring it together, please. One of the ways that we've set up this teaching series is by saying that this season of Advent has, and and here I'm borrowing from Fleming Rutledge, who wrote one of the very best books on Advent, couldn't recommend it to you enough. Um, She's just a a wonderful theologian, and and particularly in in this area of Advent. What she says is that uh, there's two faces to Advent. One is the face of light and merriment, the face that, especially we in the West are most familiar with, the happy, clappy, everything's great, Christmas miracles, Hallmark movies, um, right, like the Jaded city girl finds her countryman, um, right? Like that whole thing. Um, <laughs> but then there's another face to Advent, which is the face of darkness, which is the reality that part of what really, honestly, 
the, or not honestly, I don't know why I would be like hiding this from you, but um, accurately maybe is what I mean to say. More accurately, the season of Advent historically throughout the history of the church has primarily been about the second coming of Jesus, has been about the longing for the second arrival of Jesus into the human story. And insofar as Advent is about that longing for what's to come, the, the face of darkness, so to speak, makes a lot of sense because that means that what Jesus will one day bring has not yet come yet. That one day Jesus will wipe away, even as we said in the liturgy this morning, one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there'll be no sadness or sickness or death or pain or mourning anymore, right? These beautiful promises that come at the end of the biblical story. What that means, though, is that right now there are tears and there's pain and there's mourning and there's sin and there's death. And there's all of these things are the reality. And it's precisely because of these realities that we long for what Jesus will bring. And therefore, in the waiting, part of what waiting means is staring these things in the face. And so we've been looking at this opening, what's classically called the prologue of the Gospel of John. And John starts right at the beginning by acknowledging these two realities about the coming of Jesus. One is that he brings light and that the true light is shining even now, that the light can't be overcome by the darkness, but the darkness is still present. The darkness can't overcome the light, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still darkness as a part of the story into which Jesus has come. And so last week, we looked at these opening verses, and I'm going to go ahead and and read them so that you hear the flow into today's passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is talking about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So you hear this interplay, right, in those opening verses about light and darkness. And last week, we really emphasized those opening words, in the beginning, that the reason why John opens his gospel with these words, in the beginning, is because they're meant to send off all kinds of of alarms, good alarms, I suppose. They're, They're meant to kind of connect some synapses for us, that even when I ask this group, hey, what does in the beginning make you think of? Makes you think of in the beginning, right, of the scriptural story. And so the great theme, if you even want to put this in the margin of your Bible, the great theme of the opening eight verses of John's prologue, which will then, we'll see it as we go through the rest of John's gospel, is new creation. New creation. That nothing short of a complete sort of restart is necessary in order to undo what has gone wrong in creation. And this is precisely what Jesus has come to do, to bring a new creation. That Jesus is a a second Adam, who where Adam disobeyed, Jesus will be obedient. That where the presence of God left humanity, and where humanity was cast out of the presence of God, now the presence of God comes and pursues humanity in the person of Jesus, an undoing of all that went wrong in creation, new creation. Our verses today, these next couple verses, verses 9 to 13, if you want to put it there in your margin, is also 
introducing one of the gospel's great themes, which is the theme of new birth. You can put in the margin there. So new creation and new birth. And what we said is that in this prologue, it's like we're getting the seed of, of what will fully blossom throughout the rest of this gospel. And here we get the seed, this idea of new birth. In these verses, we also, though, have these two faces of Advent. We have the acknowledgement of light coming into the world. We also, though, have the acknowledgement of darkness, particularly the darkness that resides within each of us. So listen to these verses. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is talking about Jesus. This is contrasting him with John. Uh, John the Baptist likely here, but also probably John the Gospel writer. Remember we said that there's kind of a double meaning to that idea of John was not the light, he was a witness to the light, probably talking about John the Baptist as the other Gospels do, but also the one writing these words. He's always working on two levels, John. We've got to get used to that as we work through this Gospel. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here we have building on this theme of Jesus as the light. And here we're told that Jesus is the true light. That word true there is going to show up throughout John's gospel. Jesus will be the true this, the true that. And what this is saying is, is the true light, not in contrast to a bunch of false lights, but the way that the gospel writer here is using true is more like the full and complete version of what was only partial previously. So if you look at the scriptures, you always got to figure out what scripture means by images and then maybe ask the question, what does the surrounding culture at that time mean? But something like light, it's a good choice to say, wait, what does the scriptures mean by light? I kind of know, probably saying Jesus is the light you probably have some connotations of what that means. You probably don't have to dig around and say, I have no clue what that would mean. But let's start with the scriptures. Very basically, Jesus being the true light means that, uh, biblically, the, the law was a kind of light. We're told this in the Old Testament, that the law was, was a light to the human heart, that it revealed things about humanity, um, that it spoke into the, um, the confusion of human wisdom with a kind of clarity. And this is saying Jesus, not in contrast to the law as a false light, the law being the entire Old Testament scriptures, particularly the opening portion, but it's saying Jesus is an even truer, fuller, uh, more, more complete revelation that speaks into that human confusion. You see how that works? Jesus is the true light. The Old Testament says that, uh, that the presence of God is a kind of light. If you remember the, the cloud of, of fire and, and the, uh, or what is it, the, the pillar of light, which one is it? Why can't I? Pillar of fire uh, and, and the, what's the light? And the cloud of light, right, that there's light coming from, right? That, that often, or in the temple, when God's presence comes, that there's this light that comes, right? And so, so light as, as also um, a means of revealing that God is present in a place, that God is with his people in a place. This is saying, now, Jesus is the truer version of that. Not that that was false, but that Jesus is the fuller, complete revelation of the presence of God, such that, again, one of the major themes, again and again, that you're going to hear through this gospel is Jesus telling people, if you have seen me, 
you have seen the Father. You have seen God. That everything God is, is present in me. That there is no need for a fuller, fuller revelation. Last week I talked about when his disciples go to him, they say what probably most of us would say, which is like, Jesus, we know we're, you're saying that you're sent by God. In some sense, you're the son of God. But like, could you just kind of pull back the veil and show us God? Because that would really blow our minds. And Jesus' response to that is, no, 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 no. If you've seen me, you've, you've seen God. I am God in flesh. Talk about this next week where it says that the word became flesh. What does that mean? That, that everything that God was put on human flesh such that we might know him in exactly the, so to speak, exactly the language, exactly the way that, that we as human persons know another person, right? We, we, we know in relationship more deeply than we know anything else. And this is how God chose to make himself known. He was the, the true light in that sense. That's what this is saying. It's saying that Jesus perfectly speaks what God would speak into the human story, the wisdom and the, th this is what it looks like for a human being to flourish. This is exactly what you need to hear. And Jesus reveals perfectly what God would do, right? If you've ever wondered, what would God do? What would God do if he walked among us, right? Um, who was the singer that sang that, right? Who sang that song? Who was that? Joan Osborne. There you go. Jo Bet you didn't know you'd have a Joan Osborne reference in the sermon today. But right, I always found that sermon kind of funny, or that sermon, hello. Um, I always found that song kind of funny, right? It's like, what if God was one of us? It's like, read your Bible, Joan, right? Like, that's, that's what's going on in, in the story of Jesus, right? He perfectly reveals who God is. And I just don't know that we can say that enough because I think that we, like those first disciples, have this category of, I know that Jesus was a little bit of God. I know that he was at least one-third of who God was, but there's this whole other two-thirds that are, like, really interesting, you know, the Spirit and the Father. And, like, Jesus, I can get down with him. Like, he's kind of one of us, right? Like, but what about the rest of God? No, 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 no. That's a massive theological error. That's a heresy to say that there was something that was present about God, about the very nature of God that Jesus lacked. No, no, no. All the fullness of God dwelled bodily in Jesus. Right? That's what it means, that Jesus is the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What does this mean, which gives light to everyone? It's easy to read that as Jesus brings, brings life to everyone. He brings salvation to everyone. And that's true in a sense. But the rest of the gospel itself, let alone the rest of the New Testament, excludes this idea that Jesus comes and because Jesus came, everyone will be saved. Right? That's called universalism. It's a heresy. Um, that is not what the scriptures teach. There is, a, there is a human responsibility in responding to God. And so what, what, what does this mean, which gives light to everyone? If you think about what light does, and again, let scripture interpret scripture, in the rest of the Gospel of John, and particularly in the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, what light does primarily is light reveals. In fact, that's what this is saying. The true light, which gives light to everyone. What this is really saying is, which illuminates everyone. 
In other words, the coming of Jesus was meant to shed a spotlight on every single human heart. That ultimately, at the end of, of the day, kind of capital D, that at the end of your life, at the end of, at the, end of the, the whole story of humanity, Jesus is the dividing line. How you do or do not respond to Jesus will be all that ultimately matters. And that in Jesus' coming, he sheds a light on the human story. He, he illuminates every human heart. And what's in that heart gets revealed when a response to Jesus is called for. This is what, again, we see throughout the rest of the gospel story. That encountering Jesus, which is what I'm leaning towards even calling the, the rest of this series, it comes from our vision as a church, breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. We want you to encounter Jesus here, to have to respond to him, that that's a, an illumination in every heart, that it sheds light. It says, where are you ultimately at with the one who created you? Because that's the one that you're encountering when you encounter Jesus. That's the face of light. The face of darkness is what follows. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and the, the little... Uh, a little noun tenses change here. So he came to his own is really talking about he came to that which he made. His own here is his, he came to that which belonged to him. He came to the place that he himself created, that he himself owns. And then the second noun form of, of the own and his own is, is rightly translated here. His own people did not receive him. So he comes to the place that he created, the place that he owns. He comes to the people that he created. And here this is almost certainly talking about specifically the Jewish people of his time, which we'll, we'll talk about what's going on there, and says, neither received him. He came to that which was his own, neither received him. What this makes me think of is, uh, I don't know if it's still on, is Undercover Boss still on? Is it? Do we have some Undercover Boss enthusiasts? Mark Campoli loves undercover boss um do you know this show you know this show though fascinating concept right like the ceo of a company goes and puts on a very fake looking mustache or whatever or like some horrid wig she wears or whatever right um and they go and they work amongst the people in their company um and then somehow they always end up working with like the most delightful people in their company um <laughs> which I just love that. I'm like, nah, go to like the, the sketchy Taco Bell, right? Like go to that one where everybody's miserable and throwing stuff around, like be the undercover boss there. But it's always like a really delightful and a well-run place and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, guess who I am? And, and I wouldn't know the CEO, like when I worked at whatever, um, retail or whatever, I wouldn't be like, you're the CEO of The Gap, right? Like, I don't know how people are supposed to know who this person is, but they eventually reveal themselves, right? And there's sort of this moment that the employees feel where they're either like, oh, wow, and they cry and they realize like, wow, I really nailed it and I'm so glad that you are who you are because you're definitely going to give me a raise, right? Um, or there's this kind of moment like, oh, boy, okay, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, I shouldn't have complained about whatever, whatever, right? There's this moment. Jesus is <laughs> the cosmic undercover boss, right? Like that's what this is saying. This is saying that there's a sense in which Jesus showed up, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, 
hail the incarnate deity, right? There is a sense in which, though Jesus perfectly reveals who God is, of course he's veiled in flesh. Of course we don't have a category, right? The same way you don't have a category for the CEO of your company to show up on a random Thursday and be flipping burgers next to you or whatever, right? Like, we don't have a category for an enfleshed God. There is a, a veiling that takes place. And there is a, a surprise here. And yet the devastation is that when Jesus comes to that which is his own, far from being received and embraced, he is utterly and bitterly rejected. One of my very favorite um, quotes about just who Jesus is is from this uh, journalist, this like Catholic journalist in the last century. I still have never been able to track down who this guy is, but his, uh, or in terms of like what his story is. But his name is Herbert McCabe. One of the things that he talks about, you, you may have heard, if you've been at Jacob's Well for any amount of time, you may have heard me say something like, um, I love the thought that Jesus died of being human because Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human. But in this long quote about Jesus, one of the things that McCabe says is he says that in rejecting Jesus when he came, it shows what kind of world we have created. It reveals what kind of world we created that when, when veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, when, when, when that occurs, that we reject that. That we have made a world in which the one who shows us what it means to be truly human is rejected and killed for showing us that. It shows just how deeply counter to the intention, right? God created the world, this place, in order to be a place in which human beings flourish, and then he gives a particular role for human beings to play in that. Now God comes later in the story, after the rebellion of humanity, after the curse, after all of these things occur, and he comes to that same place as what human beings were put there to be. And that place has become so, the, the air of it has become so toxic, the, the, the culture of the human community has become one so characterized by violence and suspicion by all of these things, that when that perfect human being is replaced in or, or re-put in this place, that human being is rejected for being precisely what human beings were meant to be. That's the level of darkness that we're dealing with here. Right? That Jesus, because he chose a life where, where, where to live was to love, this writer says, where, where he didn't put up these guardrails that the rest of us put up to love fully, right? What, what Tim Dees was talking about up here, that Jesus fully embraced God's call to love those who were utterly unlovable, who weren't worthy of it, right? This is what he was known for. He was killed for it. We found that so offensive. We found that so, how dare he? How dare he show us up? How dare he be that superior to us? We killed him for it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Gospel of John is going to have a lot of scenes in which Jesus is interacting specifically with the Jewish people and specifically with the leaders of the Jewish people. And far, far, 
from being the, the source of, right? Sadly, anti-Semitism is, is now, um, thank you, Kanye, right? Like, uh, anti-Semitism is, is now back being talked about in our culture, and, and we're seeing how it bubbles up in these different places and, and all of this. And people use the scriptures. People use the New Testament to say, see, even Jesus couldn't stand the Jews. They use passages like this to say that. Far from saying that, this is saying the Jewish people are God's chosen people. They're the people that he united himself with in covenant. They had longings for the coming of God into the world. And if even they rejected him, what does that say about the rest of humanity? Whatever the scriptures say negatively about humanity, it says about everybody, right? There is not one group that more deserves. If anything, the Jewish people deserve our, our reverence, deserve our, our camaraderie, because there are people who at least understand the things that the scriptures are pointing to, right? And the point of showing Jesus' interaction with the Jewish people, and especially the Jewish leaders, is to say, even those who had every single reason to understand why Jesus was coming missed him. How much more those of us who either are far from God, or I think part of what it's saying is, don't think that just because you are externally one who is seen as close to God, that you are going to recognize him when he comes. Because we know how that story plays out. So I want to talk about the two reasons why we tend to to not recognize Jesus. And, and first of all, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That word receive there is this, is this beautiful word that really talks about um, embrace of one. To receive is to embrace. To receive, there, there's even a variation of this word that talks about submitting to the authority of one. Gladly coming under the leadership of one. That's the kind of receiving that's being talked about here. And says, we don't tend to do this. We tend to miss this as people. We tend to not recognize God when he shows up. Here are the, here are the two reasons why, at least in, in this gospel, why people tend to miss Jesus, why they don't recognize him, right? There's, there's that old, like, uh, early 90s hip-hop saying, like, you better recognize, right? And what is that saying there? It's not saying you better be familiar with the face of the person who's in front of you. It's saying you better fully acknowledge the weight of my identity. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. This is why they missed him. One, because we are prone to look for God in the wrong places. We are prone to think that if God comes, he will come with a laser light show. He will come to the powerful. He will come... In, in a way that is in line with our cultural expectations of, for us, right? For them, it was royalty. For us, I would say it's probably something like celebrity, right? Like we would expect that God would show up and God would do big things and have a huge following and have, you know, a big Instagram account and, and like show up everybody else trying to play that game. He'd play the game better. And when Jesus shows up, he's just playing a different game. And people end up looking for him in all the, long, the wrong places, right? Like, you think, of even the, you think of even the Christmas story itself and how it plays out, right? 
Like when God shows up the way that we think he would, with like choirs of angels and all of that stuff, who does he do that for? Yeah, shepherds, right? Like shepherds, out in the field, dirty, like the whatever, like the menial workers of that time. He says, I'll give them a laser light show. That's how I roll. Do you know what he, do you know what, war, how he shows up to King Herod? Three guys on a diplomatic trip are like, yeah, we're going to go see the son of God. See um, and he's like, whoa, 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 what? Huh? Okay, here's the deal. When you see him, you got to come back and, and tell me. And they're like, yeah, 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 cool, 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 cool. That's, that's how much advance notice King Herod, the most powerful man at that time, gets, right? He bypasses the power structures. And if he shows up spectacularly, he normally shows up among the poor and marginalized spectacularly, right? He, does, he isn't, think of how crazy it is, right? Like we get so used to this stuff. We get so used to it. Think of how crazy it is, the way and the place where Jesus is born. I came across this illustration. I hope you can see it a little bit this week. Someone posted this. I just thought it was so powerful. Can you see it? Lean in or look over your shoulder if you're sitting in the middle. Can you see what this is? This is an illustration that someone made um, that's called Jose and Maria. Mary and Joseph, right? And it says, David City Motel, Star Beer, Wise Men something. There's no room at the hotel. They're looking for a place to stay. He's riding a horse, right? I just looked at this for a while, and I said, yeah, what would we think of this couple? What would you think their future was going to be like? What would your gut reaction be to, how did they end up in this circumstance? What did they do? Right. They asked you for money. What would your immediate reaction be? Right. Think of, of young lives, moms who are in the space, right? What's our immediate reaction? This is what Tim Dees was talking about, right? And we laughed, right? We all kind of giggled, prove your, prove your allegiance to the gospel, ha, ha, ha. And then Tim, I appreciate it, stood here and said, no, I'm serious, right? Like, this is what it is. This is how Jesus came. This is what it would look like in our time, right? Not spectacular. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born to royalty. Take that in, right? This is why we miss him. This is why we don't recognize him. We want him to show up in a way that's in accord with our own sense of, of where we want our lives to go, right? I'll say it this way. We want an upper middle class Jesus, and we want him to affirm that our upper middle class lives are where true life and meaning and flourishing come. And when he comes, the true human being the one who is truly, fully alive, fully connected to God. This is how he chooses, right? Think of this. God is the only person who ever got to choose where and how he was born. 
Ever think about that, how, how wild that is, right? I don't know all of the whatever behind that, but it's got to be true. It's got to be true, right? That God from eternity past said, no, 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 we're going to wait for Mary and Joseph for you to come. That's how you're going to go, right? The rest of us don't get to choose. He got to choose. This is what he chose, right? Jesus again and again, right? And so beautiful that it just happens to be the, the morning where Tim got up here and said what he said. Jesus again and again will say, you will so often miss me if you try and avoid the places where I tend to show up. And I tend to show up among the poor, the marginalized, the voiceless. Because like when I showed up, showed up, those are my people. That's who I showed up among, right? And so we will miss him again and again if we think that all Christianity will ever do, and I'm preaching myself here, is all that Christianity will ever do is affirm our adoption of culture's definition of human flourishing. That is not what God is here to do. Here's, here's another way to think about this. Again and again, in the Gospel of John, we will see that for those who are downtrodden, for the sick and for the poor and for the needy and for the desperate, Jesus picks them up. Many times he will do it physically. He picks them off their feet. He says, stand and walk. Some version of that. He picks up those who are down. He says, stand and walk. And then to the powerful, to the doing great all the time, to the sticking their chests out, walking around, he says, bow the knee. He says, down on your knees. Bow the knee. You need to submit to me or you'll never get it. And I think sometimes when we're doing great, the last thing we want to do is bow the knee and to hear ways in which God might be speaking and messing with our life as we currently know it. And then sometimes when we're down... We think, well, God put me down there. Maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe he's forgotten me. When he's extending a hand, he's saying, no, I want you to rise and walk because I'm with you in that place. So not only do we miss him in terms of other people, we miss him in our own stories because we tend to think, God must love me. I'm doing great. God must be thrilled with who I am. And when Jesus encounters those people, right, there's a reason we're told that the, the one dude is a rich, young ruler. He is doing well. He is crushing it. He's young. He's rich. He's ruling, right? And he walks away from his encounter with Jesus devastated, as is Jesus himself, because he knows that there's a kind of life that he cannot co-sign. And when he doesn't co-sign it, many of us are prone to hold on to that life rather than bow the knee to Jesus. And then he also knows that when we are pushed down, when our faces are in the mud, when we feel like, why again, why again, where are you, God? He knows that we are prone to say, God has abandoned me. He says, no, 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 that's when I'm right there with you. That's when I'm extending my hand. He says, don't judge others by their external circumstances, but also don't judge yourself by your external circumstances. Because so, so often you'll miss me. You'll miss me if you evaluate merely by how things are going in your life. And I'm saying this to a community that I know many of you are in pain. Many of you feel like, how long, oh Lord? Again, another thing? You take that from me and then you take this from me? I'm going through this and then you add this on top of it? Maybe God has forgotten me. Maybe he's not good. 
Maybe he's done with me. Maybe my story's over with him. And so often what we find is it's precisely in that moment, if we would just look for him, he will say, no, 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 this is what I've promised to draw near. I've said this too. I wasn't going to say this, but I know that this has been helpful to some of you. Someone said something like a month ago that shattered me. They said, if when the people of God get together, all we ever do is pray for the alleviation of suffering, where whether we know it or not, we're creating a kind of theology that puts external circumstances as the primary measure of God's presence with or not with his people. Follow what I'm saying there? If when we come together to pray, the only things that we pray for are, God, this person is sick, make them not sick anymore. God, this person is going through hardship, make it not hard anymore. God, this person is going through whatever, make it not. And when we ourselves pray, and all we do is that we bring what's going on in our lives, and we say, God, that's really hard, make it stop. God, that's really hard, make it stop. God, this is scary, make me not go through it. God, that is causing me anxiety, take it away, right? Do you know that we're not actually leaning into the promises that God has actually made to us? God never says, come to me and I will alleviate everything that's hard in your life. Instead, he says, no, no, when life gets really hard, I'll be close and I'll be near to you and I'll be with you in that. I'm near to the brokenhearted. I draw close to the crushed in spirit. So when my people come together, we say, God, that person's going through that. You better show up. You better make yourself known. You better be a comfort to them. God, you've promised it. I know that you've promised this. This is why so often we pray, God, help that person um, alleviate that suffering if it's your will, right? Because we don't know if it's God's will or not. You know what God's will is definitely? God, comfort that person. God, let them know that you're there. God, and I sometimes wonder if we're not looking for God's presence because we just haven't learned to pray ourselves and for one another in that way. God, give them eyes to see where you're actually showing up for them in this season. God, show them, show them how, how you get what they're going through and that you are forming and shaping them through it. And God, that doesn't mean that there's a lesson here for them to learn, but God, give them trust that you won't waste this, that you won't waste this, that your purposes can actually outlive our experience of the brokenness of this world, that you can weave our story in and through, not just in spite of, but in and through the suffering that we go through, because you promised to do that. Now we're praying the promises of God. Now we don't have to say, God, if it's your will. You could pray boldly. You could pray, yeah, God, you said you're close to the brokenhearted. They feel like you're absent. Show up. And if that's on us, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are soft enough to receive the ways in which you are ministering to us. When we evaluate by external circumstance, we do what humanity has done forever with God. We say, if things are going well, I have the favor of God upon me. If things aren't, I don't have the favor. If things are going well in your life, I guess God's happy with you. If, if they're not, well, what did you do to deserve this? It's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's human instinct, but that's not what the Christian faith says, and so we miss him. Which goes into the second thing, the second reason why, at least in this gospel, they miss Jesus, is we want Jesus to fulfill our agenda rather than submitting the need to his agenda. We want our needs, as we understand them, to become the needs that he fulfills, right? Very related to the first thing that I was saying. This is, this is literally why even the disciples themselves, even Jesus' closest guys, 
Jesus does all this amazing stuff. He's preaching, I've come to save the world and all of this. And then he dies and he resurrects. He defeats sin and death. And the first question his boys have for him is like, so now we're going to go to war with Rome? And you know why they said that? Not because they're bloodthirsty or not because, because they're like, yeah, but still our deepest need doesn't feel like it's been met. We're, we're still under the thumb of Rome. We're still economically disadvantaged. We still don't have power. And so like, cool, really amazing, the whole death to life thing. But like, when is our need going to be met? Right? This is what you and I do. God, I know you did all that stuff. Like, I believe, did the thing, confess you as my savior. But like, when's my deepest need actually going to be met? Be met? I love what D.A. Carson, great theologian, uh, especially on the, the Gospel of John, he says this. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, God help us, he would have sent us a politician. He didn't send us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But instead, he perceived that our deepest, greatest, most persistent need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, and our death, an eternal separation from him. And so, thankfully, he sent us a savior. He sent us a savior. We receive Jesus not as the great meter of our needs, as defined by us, we meet him as the one who meets our deepest needs, which again, life will be hard. Some of you are like, ooh, big revelation, right? Um, hard apart from Jesus, hard apart from connectedness to him, hard without hope of a future even beyond death itself. Now, now that's... that's that's a need that no one but him can meet, right? And I wish, I wish it was as simple as become a Christian and then just give him your list and boom, you're good to go, right? And I have all kinds of thoughts on why he doesn't do that and all kinds of frustrations that he doesn't do that, right? Like if he did that, one thing y'all, everybody would be Christians, right? Like sign up, right? We'd have the dopest late night infomercial and it would just be like, for, you know, $29.99, put your faith in Jesus and it'll just solve all your problems. There's at least that, right? Also, the human person in all of our brokenness is not formed except through suffering, except through losing some of the stuff that we thought we needed, right? Um, that doesn't explain all the kinds of suffering because there's kinds of suffering I've been through that you've been through that you're like, I don't get it, doesn't line up and like we await that. Do you know why I'm still a Christian though? There's hope beyond the worst things that have happened because I believe that those things will be undone one day. And I, you know why I believe that? I don't believe that naively in hope. I believe that because I worship a risen Savior who himself defeated the worst thing that ever happened to him. And it was utterly undone in his life and utterly transformed into the very purposes of God. That's why I'm a Christian and nothing else, right? And I wish it meant all the other kinds of hard go away, but alas, we're still in this broken world. That's what Advent is meant to do. It's meant to say, the proof of our hope has already happened, but the experience of it awaits us in his second coming. That's Advent. That's why so much of Christian faith feels like waiting. Waiting. 
I'm waiting, I'm trusting, I'm holding on. In Advent, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the great uh, German everything, uh, theologian and rebel and, uh, and writer and insight on, on Christian faith and all that stuff, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, what season does the Christian have other than Advent? In other words, what he's saying there is the Christian life is Advent. Advent, more than any other season of the Christian calendar, is the steady state reality for the Christian believer. I'm living between the reality that Jesus has accomplished what I most deeply need and my experience of the application of that reality to my own story. And he wrote that from prison awaiting execution by the Nazis. And he says, I have always lived in an Advent, and now especially I live in in an Advent where I believe that everything that I have ever needed has already happened, and yet I await. This is him joining in with the Apostle Paul saying, for the Christian, death can be gained. Even the worst thing that can happen to us. Last part of this passage says, but to those who did, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Pam, go back up to the first half of that verse if you would. Thank you. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, right? This is the greatest benefit of trust in Jesus, is, um, what are you saying? Oh, my wife talks to me mid-sermon. Um, you want your Yeti? Is that what you want? No. Um, uh, is we become children of God. But to all who did receive him, to all who actually embrace him, to all who willingly bend the knee and say, yes, I am willing to submit myself to your definition of my deepest need. It says he gives the right, the power, the possibility to become a true, genuine son and daughter of God through the second birth. This is the famous conversation we'll see in John 3 that he has with Nicodemus where he says, unless one has been born again, maybe you've heard that term. It's now like derogatory for Christians, like, oh, those born againers. Yeah, that is a sacred doctrine of our faith. Let's not lose that. Let's not let culture spit all over that. Yeah, we are born again because that's what we need. If, if the world itself needs nothing short of new creation, we ourselves need nothing short of new birth. You see how those two go together? Creation itself needs a restart. So do you and I. It means that the deepest parts of our identity, who we are at our core, fundamentally changes when we put our trust in Jesus. Talk about meeting our deepest need. That is your deepest need. That um, I told you that I've been reading some uh, St. Augustine uh, recently, and Augustine, who says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, he says that, that there's something about fathers in the human story. There's something about the complexity of relationship with the father that so many of the great quests in, in human history really come down to the search for a good and genuine, loving, accepting father. And the Christian story is at least that. It's coming home to the cosmic eternal father who loves you completely, 
who fills in all the gaps of the disappointment that you've experienced, whether from earthly fathers or other earthly authority in your life. He is the father who comes running towards you in embrace with his arms wide open, right? The story of the prodigal son who comes back practicing, how am I gonna get back in my father's good graces? How am I gonna show him that I've pieced myself back together? How am I gonna clean myself up enough such that when he sees me, he doesn't push me out and he turns the corner on his street and here comes dad running, arms wide open, awaiting his son, screaming out, I thought you were dead. I thought you were gone forever and now you're home. And then he throws a party for him. This is the image of all of our salvation. This is what happened to you, Christian. This is what's on offer. Those of you who have not submitted the knee is not the offer of clean yourself up enough and then watch what God will do. It's he's running towards you. Will you receive him? His arms are wide open for you. Put your speech away. And he wants to throw you a party because you were dead. Now you're alive in him. I was reading an article this week about how dangerous it is for companies to, to call themselves families. I don't know if you've ever worked in a place where it's like, like I worked in a tuxedo shop through college and do you think that's funny? Why is that funny? <laughs> and that was one of their things. They were like, we're a family here. Right, um, and uh, I was reading this article about how dangerous that is. Because, like, why is that dangerous? Why is it dangerous to say that we're we're a family? We're actually a family, right? It's dangerous because families can't fire each other, right? And it's also dangerous because you don't belong to a family according to your to your adherence to the mission and your contribution to the mission, right? Ideally, right? And so this article written in Forbes was like. Don't keep saying that because as soon as you have to fire someone or as soon as you say, like you're, you're violating fundamental principles about what it is to be family. Right? And I think a lot of us think that God is a cosmic CEO and that we are his employees and as long as we contribute to the bottom line, he'll treat us well, right? And God says, no, 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 we're family. And you say, yeah, okay, like, okay, until I don't measure up. And God says, no, 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 we're family. And not just any family, because by the way, there's some families that will cast you out if you don't adhere to what they think are, right? Some of you, that's, that's pain in your story. God says, no, no, perfect, eternal father, perfect father. My family, you don't get cast out of. It's not about the bottom line. It's not about adherence. It's just who you are now. It's just who you are, right? That's the hardest part of family. Unlike Jesus, you didn't get to choose where you showed up, but that's your family, and even the scriptures say certain things about like, yeah, sorry, that's your family. Those are your parents. You've got to honor them, right? That's your family. You've you got to be faithful to them in a, in a certain kind of way with all the nuances that we talked about in the Ten Commandments series. But, right, like, it's just who you are now. Child of God, right? Fully accepted. Right? I think about uh, the, the little babies, right? Uh, Stella just had their little babies, a bunch of little babies around and all that stuff, right? And you think about how unbelievably dependent a baby is, right? And what makes the season that y'all are in so difficult, and I'm sure I'll get an amen from this, right, is how unbelievably little a baby contributes to anything other than tears and need and weeping and sleeplessness and frustration and, oh my goodness, when does this stop, right? And what gets exciting is the older they get, they contribute like a little bit and it's like enough. You're like, oh, thank goodness, right? What if we... <laughs> thank you, Ty. 
What if we really took seriously, that's who we are in God's family. We're babies, crying, needy, dependent, messing ourselves, right? Just again and again, that's all we do, right? And then maybe somewhere along the line we're mature enough and we contribute a little bit and God's like, cool, that's great. That's really encouraging. And then we think like, God is so privileged to have me, right? Right, like this is our preteen, teenage stage <laughs> where it's like, this family is so lucky and you're like, oh, if only you knew, right? That's the image that the scriptures give us. And Jesus says, don't cast the children away because they show you what it's like to be part of the kingdom. We think children of God and immediately we go to adult children, peers of God. No, 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 children, kids. That's who we are, right? But this meets our deepest need because we needed to be born again into a different kind of family. We needed a complete restart. The amazing thing is this is not just a one-time offer. This is what God does again and again. That new birth is not just a one-time reality in the life of a Christian. It's the ongoing reality where we say again and again, this is what the rhythm of repentance is. Say, oh God, I'm acting like not a part of the family anymore. Would you remind me that I'm still in? Would you show me, right? Like so much of the war against sin is not willpower. It's, it's living into our forgiveness. It's living into we're accepted in spite of. And I don't know how that works, but I've been doing what I'm doing for long enough. Work with college kids for eight years. Been a pastor of this church for almost that same amount of time. And I know it's when people begin to lean into the fact that God loves me not in spite of my sin, God loves me through, in the midst of, just after I sin, that suddenly there's victory over sin. I don't know how that works, but such as it is. That, that's the way it is, y'all. Is it's not, right, Here, here's what we want to do. We mess up for the thousandth time, and then we say, okay, God, I'll get back to you once I'm done punishing myself for what I've done. Once I'm done creating the distance that I'm sure that you want, Right? And a lot of us learn this in family of origin is like, I'm sure you want distance from me because you're so frustrated for me. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of a timeout and then eventually I'll come back. And sometimes we don't come back or sometimes that distance just continues to expand. And the image that I get is as we distance ourselves, God is like, yeah, no, that's not, like I'm still here, right? Like, and he follows us and he's like, I'm ready when you are. I'm always ready. I died. I don't need you to add suffering to the suffering of my son in order for forgiveness of sin to be accomplished in your life. So just turn and repent. You're my kid. You're mine. Whether you like it or not, that's who you are. You're not changing your name. It's mine now and forever. Forgiveness always on offer. Jesus was born into the human story. Received that rejection that was just in the air of the environment that he was born into, such that we can finally come home, such that we can finally live into our identity as children of God. So what I want you to do um, is before we come to the table, I just want to give you two minutes just to consider where you're not living into that, right? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, where have you just forgotten? He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because you're his. And rather than spending this time repenting and all that stuff, just enjoy that and say, God, I can't believe that as I sit here this morning, in spite of my distance that I perceive from you, that you're with me. Right? Or maybe it's he hasn't met your deepest need as you define it. Just let him speak into that for one second. Right? I know that that takes some courage, but let him speak into that and say what he needs to say.
And then you can come when you're ready. How we do communion here is we come down those two aisles. There's gluten-free option here. Wine and juice uh, are labeled on both tables, bread out on the outside. Just take the bread or the cracker, dip it in the wine or the juice. This is the, this is the symbol that Jesus gave us of his body broken for us, his blood poured out such that we can know forgiveness now, eternally, every day of our lives. So just take a moment um, to, to be in the presence of God now and then come to the table when you're ready.